What causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that you have within you? You want, but you don't have. So you scheme to get it and you kill. And you are jealous of what others have. But you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yes, you don't have because you don't ask of God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. You adulteress. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the scripture means when they say that the spirit of God is is placed within us, is filled with envy? But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. The scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. So humble yourself before God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Come close to God. And He will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up in honor. Don't speak evil against each other. Dear brothers and sisters, if you criticize and judge each other, then you are cutting down and judging God's law. But your job is to obey God's law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you and I have? judge our neighbor. From the beginning of time, communication has been an issue. From the communication began in the very beginning when God spoke. And what did he do with his words? He created everything and spoke everything into existence. So he created order and he created love. And by his words, he communicated and revealed who he was. He communicated to Adam and Eve in the garden. He set boundaries and parameters for how they were to behave and to relate with one another in the garden, what they could and they could not do. So beauty is established and creation is established and truth is established by God's very spoken word. And yet, wasn't it Satan who came to Eve in the garden? And what did he say to her? Did God really say And so from the very beginning, God through communication establishes and from the very beginning, Satan twists communication and causes us to doubt truth. And he reinterpreted even what God said to Eve. And he he said, did God really say that you couldn't eat from any of the tree? What he's really meaning is this, is if you do, then what he knows is that you'll become like God. And so communication from the very beginning has had this tension amongst itself and all through history. In a perfect world, if, if communication can be broken down and, and deceit can be introduced, you think about that for just a moment. In a perfect world, it bloomed. I must say, in an imperfect world, it flourished. You can go to the next generation after Adam and Eve and you find Cain and Abel. But then you find even the patriarchs of our faith. 
Abraham was a ne- had a nephew, Lot, and even, even they had their conflict and had to go separate ways. When you go on through the patriarchs, you find David with his own children. He couldn't even keep his own children. David, a man after God's own heart, couldn't keep his own children on track, on the same page. Jesus with his disciples. The scripture tells us in, in Luke 9, 46, that there arose a conflict among them. So you're telling me, the scripture's telling me, that you can live with Jesus, walk with Jesus, and still have conflict around us. Paul and Barnabas, Paul being a mentor of Barnabas himself, and all at the same time, and the second missionary journey comes around, they divide, they can't go further, because conflict is entered. When you look at the church at Corinth, it's almost a laughing stock of what a church is supposed to be. But yet we learn so much and we see so much of our own imperfections in the church of Corinth. But you find that the church of Corinth, they were known, and one of their reputations is that when they came together, they were divided. They came together, but they were divided when they were together. Take the church of Galatia. The church of Galatia, it even says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, that there was biting and devouring among them. Welcome to the first biting Baptist church in Scripture. Then when you come to the church of Galatia. Who is the church? The church is people. People who are redeemed by God. But yet, godly people of the Abrahams and, of, and all the way through Scriptures, you see conflict arising. Now, even though in a perfect world it may have bloomed there, it, it flourished in an imperfect world, you would think over time we would learn how to overcome conflict, right? In, in our evolutionary processes, if you go that way, or in, in, our, in our sanctification processes, we would ultimately achieve the point that we no longer have conflict, right? Wrong. Absolutely wrong. You take that perfect little child that is brought into this world and we find conflict. In the very beginning of it. A study was done and published in Time magazine of siblings in conflict. Between the ages of 3 and 7, they engage in con- some kind of conflict every 3.5 or 3.5 times an hour. So keep our, reading. Our family, it's a little we, we got that. Okay. We got that one beat? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> siblings between the ages of 2 and 4 have 6.3 conflicts an hour. That's one every 10 minutes. I think we can rest on the fact that conflict comes naturally. It's very, this is a a life principle for you, get it down, that whenever you think of conflict, conflict comes through nature. All right? It's just there. Conflict resolution, however, comes through nurture. You don't get conflict resolution with your bag of tricks when you get married, right, honey? You no get conflict. Comment. You get conflict. Don't talk. I'm interrupt. You're interrupting me. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you get conflict is what you have whenever you come together. What you have to learn, and I did not realize this, is how to resolve the conflict. Whenever you go into the marriage and, and you enter this, and how do you resolve conflict in the midst of this? How do you? In, in, in James that we just read from a few moments ago, a passage that I think would be worth diving into because there's no way we're going to cover it all in this passage, in this time together today. But just to jump into that, and you notice right out of the chute, the half-brother of Jesus, James says, why the quarrels among you? James, the half-brother of Jesus, 
uh, obviously, James has is, is probably been recognized as um, the New Testament book of Proverbs, is what has been cl- clarified. It's very practical, very, very easy to understand, very one-on-one kind of Christianity. What you might call, if it's one-on-one Christianity, this is one-on-one conflict resolution. This is the very basics. But the thing is, again, because by nature we naturally are combative people, we aren't by nature conflict resolvers. That does not happen. That has to be learned. That's a trait that we pick up. And what James points out to us in this very intense passage of Scripture, because you see all things, you see murder, you see envy, you see strife, you see war, you see all these descriptive elements that describe you and me relating with one another, or you and me relating with one another. It's kind of a sad, scary tale whenever you use words like murder and self-indulgence and lust and envy and pride and slander and prayerlessness. And I wonder sometimes, do we really know how to resolve conflict? Do we really know how to resolve the conflict? And so I think there are three areas that we want to discuss together today with you that we see in this passage, three areas that we need to resolve conflict in. Lori, why don't you... Well, we're going to look at these three areas um, in the book of James, chapter 4. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have your Bible, if not, it's going to appear on the screen. Can I sit by you or is this you can't, like some... Way over I got to stay over here. All right. Don't cross my line all right. right here. Okay. So we're going to look at, um, first of all, what we're going to look at is internal conflict. And the thing about the conflict resolution things that we're going to give you today is this, is it may not be from the textbooks that you've read. So like when Mike and I, before we got married, we had psychology classes or went to communication classes and we would pick up how to resolve conflict. You know, you listen intently to each other and, you know, you repeat back what you think you heard you the other person one said, another, you know, things. don't interrupt. Yes, just We're like having that. an issue with that That's today. Right. Um, don't use superlatives like always, you know, you always do this, you never do that, you know, those kinds of things. So we had those tools in our toolbox. And so we would start building our marriage using these tools, but something was always there that was missing. It always seemed like. So it's kind of like building the house upon the sand, and when the wind comes, it just all falls apart and it explodes. And so James, what he does is, is the very first question he asks, he says this. In, the very first, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, if you look at the word quarrels and you look at fights, you'll see that they're plural, which indicates this isn't a one-time event. This is an ongoing chronic condition of their life and their heart. Well, then next what he does is he answers his own question with the question. Okay, so he's asked them, where do the quarrels and fights come from? And he says this, is it not because the other person is so immature they can't seem to understand anything? If they would just quit blowing up at me, then I'd quit blowing up at them. If they would just get a clue, then everything would be fine. Right? Isn't that what your translation says? That's what my translation I wrote, okay, I wrote it in mine. That's, That's reality. What, okay. That's what we think, right? But here's what James really says. He says, is it not this? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Basically what he's saying, is it not within your own heart? See, what happens is we have this rage within us that is taking place. And this word passions, actually it means desires, where we get the word being hedonistic or selfish from. Not that we ever think that we're selfish. Matter of fact, Tim Keller, book Mike and I just got finished reading, called uh, Meaning of Marriage, I think is the name of it. He said that, you know, you get married and uh, then all of a sudden you realize that the other person is selfish. 
You didn't realize that before. And then after that, the other person begins to tell you how selfish that you really are. And then after that, you kind of come to the phase where you realize that, you know what, I might be a little bit selfish, but at least I'm not as selfish as you are, right? And so it, would become, it becomes this kind of tension that takes place um, within us. And this tension, this war that rages within us can come from so many places. It can just come from that natural nature of sin. It might come from a wound that's taken place in your past, a pain, a generational sin or a pattern of conflict resolution that has been passed down. And so what happens is we, is we have this war within us and we want two different things, kind of like this. I want Mike to help me clean the house. And so I communicate that to him. This is what I want. This is a desire that I have. At the same time, I really desire and want him to do it my way. Right? Because I want to be right and I want to be in control and I want the power and I want it done my way because my way is right. And so we create just within ourselves this natural conflict that can take place. And it's kind of like the, the wave pool at Whitewater where everything's just calm and we're all doing good and we've got the kids off and, and we're going to go on a date together. And um, this has happened what several times. A date? I thought it was with you. Was okay. it with you? Yeah. Okay. So we're going to go on this date together, and um, I can't wait. I'm excited. We haven't been together. We haven't had a conversation, you know. And this has happened several times. We drive down the road, and 10 minutes later, this conflict erupts or blows up because he didn't do what date I expected. Night. Or Makes for a great night, beginning and ending. Well, sometimes, though, what's happened is we literally get 10 minutes down the highway, and we turn around and go back home. Because it's like, well, forget this. Saved money that way, too. <laughs> yeah. So then we didn't have any financial conflicts. That's right, so, that's right. Yeah. So, um, so what's happening is this. It's not the content. Because I can't tell you what we argue about when we drive down the road and turn around and came back and forget the date night. It wasn't the content. It was, it was the conduct that was taking place from a condition of our own heart. In Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45, it says this. It says, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Duh, right? No good tree bears bad fruit, and no bad tree bears good fruit. And then he goes on to say that what, what happens is it from the heart, the overflow of the heart, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So basically, whatever fruit that you see, whatever fruit that you hear, you know what the truth is? Is it really it's, that's what's growing on the inside. So then he goes on and he says, not only do you have this rage within you, but then what it does is it causes you to react. And in verse 2, he says this, You desire and do not have, so you murder. And you covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And it, the logic there to me almost doesn't even seem like It's like, I want something, but when I don't get it, I'm going to kill. And I will confess there are times that Mike doesn't... I never planned to kill you. I haven't. Right. I thought about it. I've thought about it because... If he doesn't act or do what I want him to, I don't say it, and I don't even have a plan, but I'm just like, you know, you just want to, come on, you know it, you've done it, you don't speak it, you just think it and feel it, you want to react, and you want to destroy the other person, but it doesn't just take place um, necessarily in our own marriages, it can take place with your kids, Um, it took place with a church member uh, that happened at a church that we were at, I was over... Uh, taking care of this Christmas production that we were putting together. And it was the night of the Christmas production. I don't know if you remember this or not. Yep. Okay. Very well. (laughs) She came up. She wanted tickets to the Christmas production. They were all gone. So she proceeds to lay into me and to tell me everything that I had done wrong, what a horrible leader I was, and 
And I'll be quite honest, there's, there, was a, there was a battle, there was the rage, there was a tension within me that I can't react here. And don't get me wrong, anger was floating to the top. What I wanted to say to her was right the on the tip of my tongue. But I was suppressing it, I was holding it. So she continued, and when she finishes, I just kind of calmly and politely, I turn to her, basically to summarize it, I say, you know, everything that you've spoken, I'm really sorry you didn't feel that way, but it's not true. And then she explodes, turns her back, and I honestly cannot even tell you what she said to me. But whatever it was, it triggered that eruption within me so much. When she finished, I took out after her. And I began to tell her what I can't even remember. But I do remember this. probably shouldn't have said. Probably shouldn't repeat, even (laughs) if I could remember it. And so I push the doors going out. When I come back in, I realize I have have blood on my hands. I look down, and I realize exactly what I've done. I looked at the doors, and the glass had shattered in the doors. Why? Because I had lost my temper. You're laughing. People who know me are, like, laughing at this right now. I had completely lost control. You know, God came to Cain um, when he was jealous and angry with his brother Abel, and he said, you better be careful, Cain, because sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. So we had this rage within causes us to react without. But then he says something else in verse 3. It says, you don't have because you don't ask. So basically, we receive nothing. Nothing changes. And the reason that we don't ask, the reason that we don't come to God, the reason we don't pray about this situation, is quite honestly, we've never really realized that we could. We've never really realized what's going on inside that we should take this before God. So we don't pray about it at all. Or... If we do pray about it, he says, or you ask, but you don't receive because you ask with, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So it may be like this, that you realize you need to pray about the tension that's going on, but your prayer might come out something like this, like what's coming out of my mouth is, dear God, I know I'm so wrong, but would you please convict Mike of how much more wrong he is than me? <laughs> that's right. And so the motive or intention of my prayer is completely been changed and altered. So I would say that the biggest thing in our communication wasn't necessarily the, the concrete tools that we put in our toolbox, but the growth that has taken place with each of us learning to look individually at our own heart. And when the conflict is there, the only thing you can think about is the wrong, quote-unquote wrong, that's been done to you. That you have been mistreated, you have been misrepresented. So you think about you, 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 and not in a sense of, of what have I done to create the problem, but what is, what, how's the problem been handed to me? And so it becomes this kind of self-centered, self-indulgent kind of, uh, kind of way, self-protection, self-preservation. And instead, again, if we can control our emotions, very important key in this whole thing, is we might need to stop and internally look at ourselves first and foremost before we go to the next person. But I want to even ratchet it up before we even talk about the problems of relationships beyond us, I want to talk about there's a spiritual element as well. And that there's a spiritual conflict resolution that needs to take place in, inside of us. And I, this is just something to think about. Guys, there's a slide for that. Uh, a, a resolve for spiritual conflict. And, uh, and just to think about that resolve for a spiritual conflict, think about your life. Now, I'm going to say something about the last conflict. I want you to think back to the last conflict you had. In that last conflict you had, 
Did you ever think of it as being a spiritual conflict? I'm just going to throw a hypothetical, a hypothesis across the room today. And I'm going to say this in a very broad stroke, but hang on to this, and you can prove me wrong later, all right? I'm going to say that every conflict has a spiritual element to it. There's a spiritual element that's tied into it, whether it's the main current running through it, selfishness, self-indulgence, hedonistic lifestyles, anger, emotions out of control. It's that. It has a sin element involved in it. That if we don't address the sin element, all we do is dress up the symptoms. Because I believe that the manifestations of the conflict are really symptomatic to what's going on spiritually inside of us. And that's why whenever you think about what, well, actually think about it. You go to the doctor sometime and your back's hurting. And you get to the doctor and you go to the chiropractor and they say, no, your hip's out of the line. All right? Well, hold my back's hurting, but my hip's out of the line. How does that al- it lines up? Because they're symptomatic, all right? Also, you, uh, you get a, let's say you, you, your boy goes out and kicks the dog, all right? He goes out and kicks the dog because mom just grounded him. Why did mom ground him? Not for a legitimate reason. She grounded him because dad is late again coming home. So you can see what happens. The dog received the punishment from the kid who received the punishment of the emotional outburst from the mom, who the reason that the dad is late is because the boss came in at the last hour and gave him an assignment that he has to complete in the next 48 hours. So who should really get kicked is the boss. But you can't go do that one, all right? So what you do is you go out and you kick somebody else. Well, who, where's the problem? The problem is all the way up the food chain. Well, see, sometimes I'm, I'm afraid that we, we, we have blamed the problem over here when the problem is truly a spiritual problem. In fact, whenever you go on and you're reading it all in context, it's, it almost seems like there's a, a turn the page kind of something. Why, what's he talking about now? Whenever you come to, to verse uh, 4, it says, You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with uh, the world is enmity? Is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is not that purpose that Scripture, that he yearns in jealousy over the Spirit, that he has made and dwells in us? Here it is. You've got this, this conflict that happens. And truly, what's going on is it's a spiritual conflict that's happening. He says, you'll become an enemy of God. How do you become an enemy of God? Because you fell in love with the world. Let me give you a case in point. 80% of marriages say that they divorce because of financial reasons. The list of finances. He was a spender. She was a saver. He got us in debt. That Money comes into play. All right? How many of y'all have ever had a conflict over money in the home? Raise your hand. Thank you. Otherwise, you're lying. Okay? Uh, if you are in a relationship with anybody and you're sharing bank accounts in any way, there is conflict in the home, okay? But why is it? Is it because money is evil? No, money's not evil. Money's all moral. What happens, though, is in our heart. Is I want this, but I'm going to buy this, and you're not going to get that. And, and I want this, and we start fighting over, is our kids going to get an iPhone or a flip phone? Or, you know, I'm going to get the new toy or the new computer? Or we need this in the house, but I want that in the garage. And, and you get this kind of thing going on, this little tension. And what is it? Because we have friendship with the world. Because we're more in love with the world than we are the things of God. And so what happens is, yeah, it manifests itself in a conflict over money, 
at the kitchen table or while you're out shopping. It manifests itself there. The problem is actually a spiritual problem. Because I love the things of the world more than I love the things of God. Money becomes my God. Now you can fill in the blank with anything else. I want to say that you trace the conflict in your relationships and I bet you'll find a thread back to a brokenness in a relationship with God. So what do we do? When we're in this broken relationship, when we're having this, this friction with the kids or with the wife or whatever, what do we do? I think we need to first go to our knees and say, where are we in relationship with God in this? Here's, here's the first thing, is submit to God. There needs to be a, an actual voluntary, I am under God's authority. Now, that's, that sounds like a good Sunday school answer. But really what it comes down to, who's calling the shots in your life? Who's calling the shots? Because somebody is. For most of us in American culture, it's the world. It's the boss. It's the business. It's the dollar. It's the, it's the other stuff that's out there that's calling the shots. And I want to bring us back to a simple relationship with God. Do you have one? But then he also says in verse 7, he says, resist the devil. Now, Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You're, we not, find you're not talking about resisting your wife. No, no, I didn't calling. say the devil this way. Okay. Uh, well, you were pointing that's another like devil. that. All right. Uh, the, the other devil. All right. So, not that you're a devil either. Uh, you're I'm just tracking. a little sweet little angel. I got Fallen, you. but sweet. In public. Uh, but anyway, you, I was on a roll there. Uh, resist the devil. Think about that for just a moment and he will flee from you. What happens when Jesus resists the devil three times? In the wilderness, using Scripture, three times, Satan leaves him, and the angels come and minister to him. But he submitted himself to the Word of God, to the worldview of God, to the ways of God, and then he was able to resist the devil. See, now you just jot this down somewhere in your notes. You will never, you will never be over until you are under. You will never be over Satan. You will never win the victory until you are first under the authority and the direction of God. You'll never be over until you're under. Number three thing he says, he says in verse 8, he says, draw near to God. Now he goes on through a whole list of other aorist imperatives and so forth. He talks about cleanse your hands, you sinners. He says, weep. And, and then he even throws in humility in there. He says, these are the elements of how we're going to reconnect with God because of this broken relationship, these are the same elements that we have in a, in a marriage relationship. If I will learn to submit, if I will learn to humble myself and resist my the evil intentions of my heart, you see what can happen? I take those, those elements and those verses right there. I can actually improve my relationship. Throw some humility next time you have an argument. Throw some humility into the pool and see what happens to the dynamics of the conversation. Next time there's conflict, be a little bit more graceful. Cleanse your hands, you said. Next time you're, you have conflict, instead of asserting your authority in your rightful place, instead, won't you submit to the other person? You say, hold on, the Bible talks about the man submitting to the woman. You know what? The Bible also says us submit to one another. So what if we took a humble approach like that? Here's a life principle for you, because they all tie together. A right relationship vertically with God will result in a right relationship horizontally. If I am right with God, I can't, I can't have tension here. 
I will, I will want peace here. If, if I'm trying to make this right, but I'm not making this right, then I am, I'm doing it from a very humanistic approach. But if I make this vertical relationship right, and I'm right with God spiritually, it's gonna, this is going to fall in place. I looked back over this weekend in preparing this message and thinking it through. And I think through the examples in my own family, extended, I counted 28 different family relationships. Marriages and divorces and aunts and uncles and cousins and just a broad spectrum of people. And I just thought through my own family. 28 different families. And this is not some church answer, but it is absolutely true. Of those families, when I was growing up and even here in adulthood, that are healthy, where there is peace, where there is tranquility, where there is union, there is a clear, definitive relationship with God. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Resist the devil, He will flee from you. Submit yourself to God. This whole spiritual relationship, spiritual conflict resolution, may be the most important part. If you don't have a relationship with God, you're not going to know the grace that comes that you can give in your relationship with one another. So before you even go external, first look internal. But not just internally, where's the passions that are driving me, but look spiritually, look vertically. How is that relationship? Well, and I, I want to make it clear also what you're saying. I don't, I don't think you're saying at all that if your relationship is right with God, that you're never going to have a disagreement, that I'm you're never that. going to argue or anything like that. It's going to come. It will come. Matter of fact, Paul says, be angry. And then he says, but don't sin. And don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Now, I've noticed that on the slides we've had a conflict communication problem yeah. because yeah. they're not the correct slides. So yeah. this whole next <laughs> section... Um, I'm going to go through it, and um, you can just jot down and take notes if you want to, but it probably uh, will not appear on the screen. But these next verses, two verses, is all it is. Um, and I'm just going to read them really fast to you. It says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, and the one who speaks evil against his brother judges his brother and speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And as I was going through that, I, I literally had to, like, slow it down. I kind of had to go, What? What? I don't really get this. But what he's talking about, he's, he's moved from this internal part to the spiritual part to how our relationships and the whole external conflict part, okay? And so what he's telling them here, beginning in verse 11, he says it three times, is don't speak evil against one another. The word here is mekatalelo, and it literally means to slander, to cut each other apart. But what he did is he said, the way, the way that he's saying it, he's saying, kind of like when you've got your two kids in the back seat and they're arguing back and forth and you just turn around and you say stop it quit it right that, that's really kind of the translation of what's going on here Macadaleo, kind of like on father of the bride too when we call it right and so maybe you just try that with yeah. your kids you know, so it, what he's saying is, is put an end to this and so what i would like for us to do is is to break these apart really quick and so verse 11 the very first part it says do not speak evil against one another. And we kind of, that's a little easy. We, we, we kind of get that. Although we might not practice it, we get it. It's, it's kind of the adage, don't talk if you don't have anything, you know, good to say or whatever. But what, the way that he's saying it is this. He's saying, you're doing this as a lifestyle. You don't even realize it, that this habit is going on in your life. It's kind of like if we argue with each other, 
um, Mike can say to me, you know, you're raising your voice again, and I've been doing it for so long, and it's become such a habit. I don't even realize that he's taken place. And here James is saying, stop it. Stop slandering your brother. And the thing with this does is it reveals how I actually relate to others. And then the next part of verse 11 says, the one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And so what we have to do is define what is that law. Well, we go back at the beginning of James, and he defines it. He said, here's kind of how you need to relate to each other. Here's the law. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you know what? We get that. We think that. We agree with that. And it applies to us, except for the argument that we just had last night. So really what happens is when I begin to speak bad against my brother, against my friend, I slander the law. I basically say this. The word of God doesn't really apply to me here in this situation. I believe it. It just doesn't apply here. And so I begin to slander the word of God. We've done this several times in our heart. In the message paraphrase, it says this about this verse. It says, you're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it, which I think is a really good translation of that. But we've done this in our own home. There was a time when um, when we first got married, the volume level in our arguments was quite high. And Caleb, our middle son, he just he couldn't stand this. And so he came to us one time, and he said, why are you, why are you shouting at each other all the time? Why, you know, why are you arguing back and forth? And so we, we could see the insecurity. We could see the fear that was in him. So we sat down with him and said, you know, you're right. We shouldn't be talking to each other this way. We should be loving each other. Matter of fact, we're going to give you permission. The next time we argue, you just come and tell us you're raising your voice. <laughs> Probably not a that good idea. Work. It didn't work. Um, because guess what happened? We didn't take care of the internal part. We certainly didn't take care of the spiritual part. And so what happened was still the external conflict because we began arguing and volume level begins to go up. Here comes Caleb now that we've just given the honor of being the volume control police. And he comes on the scene and says, hey, you're raising your voice. And what did we do? But turn around and then turn around and yell at him. As if we said, yes, you're right. We shouldn't speak this way to each other. But it doesn't apply in this argument. It doesn't apply here. And then James goes on and he said, there's only one lawgiver and judge. Excuse me, he says, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but now that you have become a judge. You know what you just did? It reveals what you see about yourself and your position. You have just put yourself, instead of saying, I have to do the law, it doesn't, but what we're saying is it doesn't apply to me, so really I'm a judge, I'm better than the law, I'm over in the law, and I've self-appointed myself to be judge. To where in verse 12, he comes back and he says, but there's only one judge. There's only one lawgiver. And who are you to think that you are a judge? Or in grade school translation, who died and left you boss? Basically, is what he's saying. And aren't we right back kind of the beginning of the message of communication and where it all began and Satan coming to Eve and saying, you know, God, he really doesn't want you to know this because you could be like God. And when we get into these situations, these external conflicts, we maneuver ourselves into a position where we don't see it, but in our heart, deep down, we're taking on that role as if we were God. The, uh, the reality is behind our words, Proverbs eighteen twenty one says it like this. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit you choose. I want you to write that down. Proverbs 18.21. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit you choose. 
Now, when you think about the conflict that comes up, I don't know about you, but as Lori was expressing, the emotions kind of step in front of everything. The passion steps in front of everything. And and the only way that we learned after a year and a half, now I I can truly say this, and it's not because we're standing here today. We're best friends today. We're best friends today. We got there through horrible conflict with one another. Horrible conflict. But it wasn't just because eventually we, we became best friends through our conflict. We actually had to learn to resolve the conflict. And once we saw our own selfishness, our own passions, once we began to tie, this conflict has a spiritual tie to it. Then we began to see that we got a problem here. It is not just you with me and me with you. It is me with God. It is my passions. It's my own internal longings that I need to get straight. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for a few moments with me? I just want you to think for a moment about your own relationships. Obviously, we've, we've hammered clearly on the marriage scene today. It could be with your father. It could be with your mother. It could be with anybody. It could be with your employer. And I want you to first stop, go inside, and think about your internal passions. What's driving you in this passionate pursuit that is ruffling your feathers, stirring your pot, whatever it is? How does God fit into the equation? Have you even allowed Him to be a part and let Him examine you? How much have you submitted your life to Him? Or are you resisting Satan and His calling on you or what He's trying to do in you? How's the relationship? Are you drawing close? It's going to be really hard to be in unity with one another and take care of those external conflicts if we're not internally and spiritually right with Him. Father God, we bow before You now and we just ask that that we not miss You and what You want to do in this place and in our midst and in our relationships. Father, forgive us for our passionate pursuit, our own selfish desires. Forgive us, Lord, for not even considering You in our relationship, for not letting You keep us in check. Lord, would You deal with us now? Just through this spirit of prayer, I want, I want the band to just sing over us today. So you can remain seated, you can stand, you can come to the front and pray, you can come as a couple and pray. If that's what you need to do, you can, you can come as an individual, as a family, whatever your situation is. Just let God begin to restore it and resolve the conflicts internally, spiritually, and externally.